Amen. I want us to stand together. Let's stand and pray and ask the Lord to touch this class today. This would be a good time to invite his spirit to have its way. Would you join me right now? Lord, thank you for your blessings. God, and your goodness to us, I thank you for this time together as we study your word. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to say, Lord, and what you're going to speak to each heart today. Lord, we open now our hearts. We want to receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. Lord, I praise you for the power of your word today. Lord, you said it will not return void, but it will accomplish what it was sent to do. Now, Lord, send your word into this congregation today. Let us hear what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. We thank you for those that are gathered here today. Keep us safe today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's great today to have a special speaker today for our adult class. And I know he's going to do a great job. I knew his family years ago and and uh, then the connection with them coming to our church not too long ago, we reconnected with his family, and they're great people, the Collins family and the Brown family. And it's good to have Marcus and Sarah as a part of this church. They're a great young couple. Would you welcome Marcus Collins as he comes to share the word of the Lord with you today? Amen. Take your liberty. Amen. Praise the Lord. Anytime uh, I'm scheduled to teach and it starts getting slick outside, I, somehow my mind goes back to one Sunday where it was uh, snowing very heavily and we were sitting in the median of the interstate on our way to church. Um, I called Pastor Kyle and I said, we're sitting in the median and I don't know if I'm going to make it in time, but um, the Lord provided a way like he always does and we got a police escort to church I think that's the only time I've ever been in the back of a cop car I hope it's hope it's the last time I'm in the back of a cop car amen but it's good to be with you all today thank you for making the attempt to come to church and for making that sacrifice and I believe that the Lord will bless your sacrifice <clears throat> I want to give honor to Pastor Jean, Sister Jean this morning um give honor to Pastor Kyle and Sister Amanda. I want to give honor to you all as well, and thank you for praying for me. Last Sunday I was sick. I had been ill for, I guess it was about a week or so, just not feeling well at all. My wife came up and got a prayer cloth and brought it home to me, and I, I took that prayer cloth and I prayed for, for my own healing, and I guess it was by Tuesday morning I I suddenly realized it's funny how it surprises you when God answers your prayers right but I realized I, I feel perfectly fine so I want to thank you all for praying I want to give honor to God for that today <clears throat> we're going to be one more person I do want to honor I want to honor uh, brother Carr and sister Carr my uh, dad has always talked very highly of the cars it takes a lot to leave an impression in my on my dad um, I should know um, but but uh, he always speaks so very highly of them, and I didn't want to miss the chance to honor them this morning. We're going to continue today our series of the Discipleship Project talking about the DNA of a disciple, and I think some people read ahead. I don't think it had anything to do with the weather at all. I think it had to do with us talking about loving each other today. Um, 
they read ahead and they decided to miss this morning. But um, we're talking about the DNA of a disciple and talking about the measure of love. And our lesson big idea this morning is because love is the defining trait of the Christian faith, its characteristics will become obvious in all our relationships. If love is not obvious in all of our relationships, it's time for us to take a step back and, and really assess where we stand in our relationship with God. Our love to one another, our love in every relationship, every aspect of our life is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. In fact, the scripture oftentimes connects our love for one another with our love for God. If I say I love my brother, you know, if I say I love God, but I don't love my brother, I hate my brother, then I'm a liar. I can't love God and not love my, bro- not love my brother. So there's a connection between, between all those relationships. Our scripture focus is in 1 Corinthians today, and I'm going to read a little bit farther than um, the book provides, but 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 13 say this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. But when, when I was a child, I spake as a chi- spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I, I don't think it's by accident, just as we're reading through this, I don't want to skip over this, and that's why I kind of read farther than the book called for. But in the middle of talking about love and how strong love is, how established love is, that we prophesy in part and we know in part, and what we know and we prophesy, those things are going to vanish away when, when God establishes the new Jerusalem, but love is going to remain. And then in the middle of all that, he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. When I was a child, I acted as like a child. But then when I grew up, I started acting like an adult. I think that ties directly to all this discussion about love. If you don't love your brother, that's childish. It's, it takes an adult to look at your enemy or to look at that person that gets on your nerves and sits behind you and breathes down your neck every Sunday morning. I'm not talking about anybody on my side. It, it takes an adult to say, you know what? I love that person. Despite what they've done to me, despite their flaws, despite their past, I love them. That takes an adult. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is greater than our hope. Our hope is what drives us. My, my hope of etern- spending eternity with Jesus Christ and finally seeing him face to face is what drives me every day to live this life. But even greater than that hope is love. It's love. A couple of takeaway points before we even really get into the lesson is that love is strong enough that even when everything else passes away, prophecies, tongues, those gifts of the Spirit that, that minister to us now but that we won't need in the, in the coming world, even when those pass away, love won't fail. 
It never fails. And loving one another is a part of growing spiritually. You have to love one another. Circle worker. He didn't start as a great preacher. He didn't start as a great teacher. Um, In fact, he wasn't really known for his dynamic leadership. He didn't have a great following. He didn't have a bunch of disciples. In fact, at first glimpse, he was um, an unassuming yet greatly influential figure in, um, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the early church. And it just so happened that he got a name change. It's funny how when you meet Jesus, your name changes. That's why I'm thankful for baptism, because when I go down in the name of Jesus Christ, my name changes. All of a sudden, God sees me with the name Jesus. He doesn't see me with the name that reflects my past. But he got a name change. He was born Joseph, a Levite. Um, Not a bad heritage to be born into, to be born into the priests. Um, He presented a characteristic, though, that earned him a nickname among the apostles. And that nickname was Barnabas, or encourager. Barnabas means encourager. And we see this characteristic of encouragement in action um, throughout Barnabas's ministry and his dealings with the early church, but especially when it came to a man named Saul, or who became Paul, another name change. Um, When Saul was first converted after his meeting with Jesus, when the man going up met the man going down on the road to Damascus, he was not necessarily just welcomed right in by the church. The church was skeptical. The church was scared. This was the man that left Jerusalem for Damascus, and he took with him letters from the the chief rabbis, from the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, that he could take anyone who professed the name Jesus, who taught in the name of Jesus, bound back to Jerusalem. It was his sole purpose and his sole desire in life to take Christians back to Jerusalem to be punished for their blasphemy. And he believed it wholeheartedly. He did not believe he was in the wrong. He did it ignorantly. And he says later that he was the chief among sinners, but he was forgiven because he did it ignorantly. He didn't understand. But, but it was his sole desire to take the believers bound back to Jerusalem to see them punished. There's no telling how many people he did that to. We don't have a count in the Bible how many people he persecuted. We just know that he persecuted the church. And all of a sudden, this guy says, no, I put all that behind me. I've converted. I believe in Jesus Christ now. I've been baptized. I spoke in tongues like you did. Take me into your flock. And they were a little bit hesitant. They, uh, they were scared. They were scared of this man. This was the guy that it's basically like welcoming a spy into your, into your group and, and just treating him like everybody else. But when, when the early church would have rejected him, Barnabas stood up on his behalf, and the scripture says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And in hearing the story of Paul's initial attempt, um, I, I often think about how how the church today would react. How would we react if, if the one that 
that was persecuting the church came among us and said, okay, I, I believe now. Um, you know, if, think of a communist leader in the world today that persecutes the church, destroys their churches, uh, makes them disappear. I'll never forget a story I heard from a missionary to, I think it was to Vietnam. He was training three young men for ministry. And one day he woke up and those three young men were gone. Never to be heard of again, never to be seen again. The, the government had come in and taken them and they just disappeared. Nobody ever heard from them again. Now imagine the person that's responsible for all of that walks into church in the, in, in the back doors one day and says, hey, I believe now, let me in. And not only that, I'm going to teach you and I'm going to preach to you and I'm going to write most of the New Testament. Um, we, we might be a little hesitant. We, we might be a little scared. But that's where love comes in. And that's where encouragement comes in. And Barnabas steps in and, and convinces the church to, to allow Paul in. But to be a disciple of Jesus is to love and encourage your brothers and sisters in the Lord. One of the great benefits and challenges of discipleship is living in a relationship with fellow Christians. And everybody said amen. Um, we can list the benefits. We know the benefits. We know that we're not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We know that if we're sick and we're hurting, we can call on the church, the elders, and they'll lay hands on us and they'll pray for us. I experienced that this past week. We know all those benefits, but because, because we know we're supposed to love each other, we don't necessarily talk about the challenges all the time, but it can be challenging. Fact of the matter is, every one of us in this room is a human. Every one of us has a different personality. Every one of us has a different sense of humor. And we offend each other. Maybe we don't mean to. Maybe we do mean to. But we offend each other. And that's, that's just the fact of the matter. But that's what makes it challenging. It's easy to love God when all God does to you is good. We know that God only does good to us. He loves us unconditionally. loves us more than anybody could ever love us. He died on the cross for us. That's an easy way to give reciprocal love. But that person that doesn't give you the time of day and scuffs your shoe at the altar and blows snot all over the altar and it gets on you and whatever else, you got to love that person too. That's, that's a challenge of Christianity. Traits that are not apparent in superficial, casual relationships, traits that we don't necessarily pick up on with people that maybe we just pass by or we meet in the grocery store or whatever, those become more apparent when the closer we get to somebody. The closer we get, the closer we work together, the more things that we do together, trying to reach souls, those, those traits start to come to the surface. But loving other disciples is a commandment of the Lord. The Lord commanded us to do that. And it's not something that we only feel, but it's something that we live out. It requires action. Put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You know, you, you, you have to act out your love. It's not just a feeling. And quite frankly, sometimes we feel less than loving. I've, I've had moments where I felt less than loving towards some people, but you have to act loving regardless. You have to love them regardless. Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So love wasn't a new concept for Jewish followers of, of Christ. 
Um, in fact, Jesus, when asked what's the greatest commandment, he gives two commandments, and they both had to do with love. The first commandment was to love God with all your heart, mind, your soul, and the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving each other was not a new concept. So what did Jesus mean when he said, a new commandment I give you? If the, They already had the commandment to love each other, but he says, I give you a new commandment. Well, what's the new part? The new part is when he says, as I have loved you, love one another. That's the new part. In fact, Jesus, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, but I give you a new commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. It's the how that's the important part. How do I love my brothers and sisters? The disciples were men of diverse backgrounds, um, personality types, and character flaws, yet Jesus actively demonstrated his patience and kindness to them. The type of love he was commanding required action. Jesus' love was not something that he just said. He didn't just say, I love you, but he showed it in his action. In fact, he showed it in the greatest action. No greater love hath a man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for those of us that he called friends that don't deserve to be called friends. He did the ultimate action in showing his love. So Christian love is a type of love that you walk in. You walk in this kind of love. You are commanded to love everyone the way that Christ loves you. There was a commandment from Jesus Christ himself. But if we're going to love others the way Christ loves us, we need to understand Christ's love for us. We need to understand what that means, what that looks like. So the first thing I would point to is that Jesus' love was not hindered by what you and I had done to him. And make no mistake about it, you and I have done something to Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the sin of every single person in this room that put Jesus Christ on the cross. It wasn't just the sin of, of, the, of the Israelites leading up to the cross. It wasn't just the sin of the early church. No, every single person that has fallen short of the glory of God is responsible for the sacrifice that had to be made by Jesus. So you and I have done something to Jesus, and in spite of that, that, that didn't hinder his love whatsoever. Scripture says that God demonstrates his love, his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to fix ourselves up before Christ loved us. In fact, we couldn't. It was impossible, but he loved us anyway. Jesus commanded us, just as he has loved us, even when we didn't know him, possibly even refused him, possibly turned our backs on him. I don't think I'm the only one in this room that has made a mistake since I came to Jesus as a nine-year-old. You know, I was born in, born in the water and the spirit at nine years old. I've made a lot of mistakes since I was nine. Um, despite all of that, Jesus continued to love me. And he knew the mistakes I was going to make in the future. But he still loved me anyway, and he still died for me anyway. And that's exactly the kind of love that he commanded us to love each other with. And it gets tricky here because we're, in our flesh, we, we're kind of self-preserving by nature, right? So somebody hurts me. Maybe they hurt me really badly. And in my self-preserving nature, I think, well, I'll forgive them, but I'll never forget. Or I'll forgive them, but I just can't really have a relationship with that person anymore. 
But is that really Christ-like love? Is it, is it really reflecting the love that Jesus gave me when he said, I know what you've done, but I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to love you. And not only that, I know what you're going to do in the future, but I'm still going to love you and I'm still going to forgive you. That's what Christ-like love is. So being disciples mandates love for one another, but one of the ways that we reflect our love for one another is fellowship, fellowship with other believers. And that doesn't only mean being in church together. That can be life groups. That can be dinner at someone's house on a Friday night. That can be a shopping trip for the ladies. That can be, you know, you name it, fellowship together. That doesn't mean only church service. Church services are vital and they're essential to our, our walk with God and to, to growing a church, but God never intended for us to only spend time together in church services. That's more of a modern church culture trend that we show up on Sundays, some churches show up on Wednesdays, and, and we see each other, and we shake hands, and we're polite, and we say praise the Lord, and we stand by each other in the altar, and then we go home and we live our separate lives, and then we come back on Wednesday or on Sunday and we do it all over again. That was never the model Christ intended for his church. That was not the model that the early church used in the first century. In fact, there are many um, examples to the opposite of that, that that we'll talk about. You know, I can show up every Sunday for a year, and I guess it's been over a year since we've been attending this church now. Um, I can show up with my wife every Sunday for the next year. And we can sit right behind Brother and Sister Jenkins every Sunday. And if I don't say a word to them, I can be in church service with them every Sunday. I can worship with them. I can sing the same songs they sing. I can dance the same times they dance. We can be in perfect unity in worship. But I will never develop a relationship with them outside of that. That's not what grows a relationship. That's not what grows fellowship with one another. And that's not what grows a church. Serving God together in church is important. It's absolutely essential, and I don't want you to take away that I'm saying that it's not. That's one thing that binds us together like nothing else can. When we're together and the Spirit of God is moving and he's ministering to all of us at the same time and the spirit of unity comes in, and suddenly we have a new vision, we have a, we have a new understanding of our purpose in our community, nothing else can replace that. But I can't grow a deep relationship with any of you only limiting it to that. One key way loving other disciples is demonstrated is through fellowship. Fellowship should be prioritized. Um, in today's world, people are becoming more individualized and isolated all the time. I hinted at, hinted at that uh, a moment ago. You know, it's easy to get busy. I, I know what it means to be busy. Um, it, it's easy. It's really easy to do that. It's really easy to get distracted. It's easy to be tired. And if we're not careful, we'll overextend ourselves too. And, and God doesn't want us to overextend ourselves. But the thing of it is, is that fellowship is not something that is required to live our daily lives. It's required by God. It's required to grow the church. But I can live my life and, and have no hindrances about it and not have any fellowship. I have to choose to fellowship. I have to make time to fellowship, just like I have to make time to pray. I have to make time to fellowship, and fellowship should be a priority in my life. Technologies and modern conveniences are um, 
one reason, I would say. It's not the only reason. I think they get blamed a lot. I think it's more about the attitude of the user than it is the device itself. But, you know, we have modern conveniences. And those modern conveniences feed into our uh, individualistic mentality. And suddenly we start to isolate ourselves more. And we feel kind of connected because we've got our new devices, but we're not really connected. And, and we're starting to see, if you look around you today, the world is so lonely, so much lonelier today than it used to be. And it's because we're so busy. It's because we have our, our modern conveniences that we, that we choose to pour ourselves into. And it's because we isolate ourselves. That's what, kind of what we're groomed to do nowadays. And people are becoming lonelier. One book on smartphones, and like I said, I don't blame smartphones only, but, but I do believe that they're a catalyst for it. One book on smartphones put it like this. The quote says, smartphones and social media were supposed to cure the epidemic of loneliness. You know, smartphones won't cure your loneliness. Only Jesus Christ can cure your loneliness. But smartphones were supposed to cure the epidemic of loneliness. We would all be connected and none of us would ever feel alone. But the harsh truth is that we can always be lonely. This is important. We can always be lonely, even in a crowd. And now even more so in a digital crowd. We can be lonely in a crowd. We have to engage ourselves. And I can attest to being lonely in a crowd because back when my uh, German skills weren't that great and I traveled to Germany to spend a year there. I was in a lot of crowds, and I didn't really understand a lot that was being said. Um, and I was pretty lonely because I didn't communicate with them. I didn't interact with them. I was in the middle of a bunch of people, but being around a bunch of people doesn't bring you satisfaction. It doesn't bring you a relationship. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, it's not only the pastor's job to exhort the church. We're supposed to exhort one another. We're supposed to feed into one another's spiritual lives. We're supposed to show up to life group and connect with somebody over, over a joint passion and minister to them when they're hurting I, I heard about a life group one Sunday. Um, it was for the, the widows and widowers life group. And I thought, wow, that's just fantastic. Because it's people that are, are facing a similar trial, facing a similar obstacle. Nobody else can really understand the way they can. And they're ministering to each other. They're doing exactly what, what the scripture that we just read said, exhorting one another, growing with each other, feeding into each other, ministering into each other. Some of, the, some of the most influential times that I've been ministered to in my own life when I was dealing with things, struggling with things, yes, some of them came from the pulpit, but some of them didn't. Some of them came in the form of a text message from a minister friend of mine who didn't have any idea what I was going through in that moment. But God moved on him, and he sent a message to me. That, that's the connection that we need. That's what it means to exhort one another. This doesn't mean only in church services, as, I, as I've said. Um, 
examples in the early church of exhorting one another, uh, growing together. In fact, the scripture calls it provoking one another to good works. Um, provoking is usually a negative word in my house. <laughs> um, but we're supposed to provoke each other to good works. And there are plenty of examples in the early church. <clears throat> my notes are mixed up, so I can't tell you what they are. We'll find it. But Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The brotherly fellowship, brotherly unity, dwelling together in unity, is as precious as the ointment that was used to anoint Aaron's head at the very beginning of all this. To enter into the Holy of Holies, Aaron and the, and the priests, they had to be sanctified to God. And that required anointing them. And even as precious as the anointing oil that made all of that possible in the temple, that's how precious brotherly fellowship is. That's how precious it is for us to dwell together in unity. It doesn't say to be in one mind. That's important. Being in one accord is important. In fact, that was a precursor to the spirit falling in Acts chapter 2. But that's not what it says. It says to dwell together. You don't dwell together through a smartphone. You dwell together by being present in person with one another, living life together. The natural result of the early church fellowship was that the church grew and the disciples loved and fellowshiped with each other. It was through a combination of meeting in the temple and from house to house that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We as believers, as part of the, we're, we're part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we're, we're the body. And we know the analogy, the, the metaphor that's used throughout scripture where the church is personified and it talks about you have different parts, they have different characteristics, they have different gifts, they all do different things. You can't be made up of only right hands because then you can't eat anything. You have to have a mouth too. You have to have legs to walk. You have to have all these different things. We're part of the body of Christ. But I would pose it as a rhetorical question. What happens if one of your parts of your body gets isolated or cut off? What happens to it? It's no longer connected to the head, so it no longer gets the guidance from, from the head, from the brain, to tell it what to do. No longer gets oxygen through the blood flow, oxygen from the lungs that it used to be connected to. It no longer is connected to the blood of the body. It's very important to be connected to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it withers and it dies. It perishes. If any part of your body gets isolated and cut off from the rest of the body, it perishes. And so if the church is, resembles the body of Christ, if the church is the body of Christ, and one of us gets isolated or cut off from the rest of the body. Why should we expect that we can make it just by ourselves? We have to be connected to the head of the church to guide us. We have to be here on Sundays when the Spirit speaks to the church. We have to hear what the Spirit says. We have to get that connection to the head. We need to be connected to, to, the, to the breath and the lungs when the Spirit of God moves into the church, when the wind moves into the church. We have to be connected to that. 
We have to be connected to the blood of Jesus. If we're disconnected from any of those things, if we're isolated, we shouldn't be surprised that our end result is going to be that we're going to perish. A further manner in which we can love other disciples, talking about the different ways we love one another, the one way we can love other disciples is um, in sacrificing to help them. Loving disciples see needs and, doing, and do everything they can to meet those needs. Um, this is not exclusive to those with a lot of money or a lot of resources. Every one of us is called to show love through giving somehow. If it's giving of your time, which I think is probably more precious than money, um, if it's giving of, you know, your, maybe you have a lawnmower and somebody's lawnmower exploded last week and they, they, they need a lawnmower to mow their lawn, whatever it is, you know, you have resources, you, you have something in your, in your ability, even if it's just praying. If it's sacrificing your time and saying, I'm going to pray 30 minutes a day for this person because I know they're really going through something difficult. Whatever it is, every one of us can make a sacrifice for one another. And we're called to do so. 2 Corinthians 8 and uh, 1 through 2 says, it, 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 talks about the Macedonian church um, and how the Macedonian church responded to the need of the church at Jerusalem. And Scripture points out that the Macedonian church didn't have a lot of financial resources. They were a poor church community. But they saw that the church at Jerusalem was struggling, so they sent what they had, what they could, they made a sacrifice, and they sent to the Macedonian church to help that work there. I was thinking that probably would have been a good time to make a pitch for uh, missions giving, but um, I'll leave that up to you. Um, <laughs> give as the Lord moves on your heart. Um, the Macedonian church met the need of the church at Jerusalem despite their own need, despite their own poverty. We don't have to be whole. We don't, we don't have to not have any problems in our lives to be able to sacrifice for somebody else. In fact, it's probably not very often that we're going to have zero problems in our lives. We're always going to have some kind of struggle. Even Paul had a thorn in his side. Um, that doesn't mean we can't help one another. That doesn't mean we can't sacrifice for one another. And loving one another means doing that. <clears throat> this, there's a question in the notes, and I'm going to open it up. I don't normally like to make people shout out answers, but I'm going to this time. Um, it says, how has America's consumerism culture, and I think I would strike consumerism and make it greed, because I don't think it's about buying things. I think it's about buying things and never being satisfied. I think it's greed culture made loving others with financial support more difficult. Can I open that up to anybody who wants to answer? How has our greed culture made loving others with financial support more difficult? Sure, sister. Yeah, sure, so you can give to the food pantry, yeah. Sure, sure. Well, I'll answer my own question. Um, I think that it's because it's, it's the idea of, of constantly buying, never being satisfied. It's self-pleasing. It's put, putting ourselves first. There are a lot of things that we don't really need, 
And we buy those things because we want them, and it's good to have things that you enjoy. But we buy so many things, so many things, so many things, because we're trying to please our flesh, because that's what our culture is about. And all that money that we just wasted on all that junk that we're not going to use for the next five years, and then we're going to take it to Goodwill, that money could have been put toward helping somebody else. That money could have been toward, put toward meeting somebody else's medical bills or meeting somebody else's water bill that they don't know how they're going to pay this week to the church building fund, whatever it is, meeting each other's needs. Loving other disciples includes spiritually challenging each other. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We are indeed our brother's keeper. You and I, every day, are each other's keeper. We are tasked with watching out for each other. We are tasked with watching for wolves in sheep's clothing that would come in among the people. We are tasked with being in the Spirit, in tune with the Spirit, that we wake up at 3 o'clock one night and we feel like we need to pray for somebody. That is our job. That is our task from Jesus Christ, and that's part of being his body, part of being in the church. You know, God chooses to use people for a lot of things. God could do whatever he wanted. He has the power to do it. But he chooses to use us for specific things. And, for example, the same example, waking up at 3 a.m. one day and praying for somebody, that might be exactly what God chooses to bring that person through. And I don't want that person to wake up the next day still sick and wonder why God didn't heal them, and it be because I didn't wake up and pray for them. I'm my brother's keeper. I'm responsible for my brother. Proverbs 3, 27 through 28 says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again, and tomorrow I will give when thou hast it by thee. One example of giving to one another. Luke 18 and 22 says, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. These are all moments where God is commanding other people to take care of other people. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you don't think you're your brother's keeper, I would pose the question, how are you going to bear one another's burdens without being your brother's keeper? That's exactly what that scripture is saying. It's saying, keep watch for your brother. Bear your brother's burdens with him. When it looks like your brother's not going to be able to get up off the ground because his yoke is so heavy, it's our job to go and grab a half of that yoke and pick it up and bear one another's burdens. Hebrews 13, 16 says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Romans 12, 13 through 14, Distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Well, now we're getting into talking about blessing people that aren't in the church. That becomes even more difficult. We see examples in Galatians 6 and 1 through 2 and Hebrews 3 and 13 of how we should be doing this. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such as one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But exhort one another daily why it is called today. 
I was going to pose this question, but I don't think anyone's going to shout any answers out, so I'm just going to ask it rhetorically. Um, the question would be, why do we tend to withdraw rather than drawing near when we see other disciples backsliding? I think that's an important reflective question. A lot of times we see someone struggling, and it's our job to go minister to them. We know it is. We've been mandated by Scripture. God said it's your job to go minister to that person and to, to pick them up and to encourage them. But a lot of times we withdraw. A lot of times we, we don't go to that person. And why is that? We, we don't want them to think maybe that we're judging them. Uh, we don't want to get involved in, in their problem because we've got our own problems that we don't really know how to deal with. All kinds of reasons. But I think that's an important question to ask ourselves. I'm hurrying. To be a disciple of Jesus is to love the unsaved. Love the unsaved. So our love is called to go beyond these walls. A church without walls, we're called to love beyond these walls, but to also love our community. We must never forget the reality of those who do not know Jesus. And I think if we want to really test our love for the lost, if we truly want to figure out how much we love the lost, then we should just ask ourselves, when we see someone walking by on the street or whatever, we see someone that you know, we, we think needs salvation, if we picture in our minds what awaits them in eternity, if you picture a burning hot hell where the fire never quenches, where, where you never die, you're constantly tortured for eternity, if you picture that awaiting that person, look and see what your response is. If your response is not to go grab them and pull them out of that fire, if your response is not to go minister to that person, to witness to that person, while you have the chance, while it's called today, I think that answers our question of how much do we really love the lost? Because ultimately, what greater love, what greater action of love could we give than to, to minister to the lost? And if that's not motivation enough, I, I, I would pose the question to myself, do I really love them? If I know that's what's waiting on them and I do nothing about it, do I really love them? The greatest act of love is using all means to reach the lost. Not every kind of method, and there's scripture to reflect this, but I'm going to skip the scripture. It talks about having compassion with some and making distinction with others. It's in Jude 20 through 23, if you want to read it. But it talks about using different methods for reaching different people. Not every method works for every person. Some people really need, Germans are a good example, they really need to be hit over the head a bunch of times before you convince them. And sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes a few years, like my wife. And, and by Germans, I don't mean German-Americans, I mean native Germans in Germany. Um, sometimes they, they need a little bit more of a push. They, they, they need a stronger hammer to, to beat the word of God into them. And then finally they make up their minds and they're sold forever. But it takes a long time. Other people are really struggling. They, they're really in pain from, from this world, and, and they need compassion. They don't need that strong, that strong hand of authority to come into their life and tell them, you're going to hell, blah, 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 blah. They need somebody to show them the love of Jesus Christ. So it's important as we minister to different people to remember, especially in our push, our outreach push that we have with our different locations, it's important to remember that we need to be sensitive in the spirit to how, how to minister to different people. Loving disciples understand they are born again and empowered to be witnesses. 
Scripture says you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And we immediately associate that with miracles. We immediately associate that with the ability to pray and resist sin. But one of the powers that we're given, part of that power that comes upon you, is to reach the lost. You are in that moment made a new creature, made a witnessing creature. You are given the power, you're given the ability, you're given the tools. If you question whether you have that ability or not, that power was given to you when you received the Holy Ghost. So don't be hindered, don't be, don't be discouraged, don't think that you can't witness to people. It was given to you when you got the Holy Ghost. Finally, <clears throat> two more points. To be a disciple of Jesus is to love your enemies. The next point is that it's to love your family, but maybe we can put those two points together. Um, sometimes our family is our enemy. Um, loving fellow disciples is relatively easy. Um, loving one's enemies is hard. We talked about how loving each other is a challenge already. It's even more of a challenge to love your enemies. But you're commanded to do so. Um, I'm not going to get into what makes it difficult to love your enemies because we all know we've all had enemies in our lives, I think. Um, but we have to remember that love suffers long. Even when the person you're trying to reach is unresponsive, Love is kind even when a lost soul criticizes you for what you believe. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up about the fact that I know the truth and other people don't. Love does not behave rudely, but it speaks truth in love. It does not seek its own. No such thing as a church clique in God's church. It doesn't seek its own, but it reaches for the one sheep outside the pasture while the other 99 are in security. Love is not provoked when people treat it wrongly. It does not rejoice in iniquity or make compromises when spreading the gospel, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, including the pain of lost loved ones' rejection, the burdens of fellow believers, the burdens of the lost. Love believes all things, including that there's still hope, even for the drug addict, for the alcoholic, for the pornography addict, for the murderer, for the rapist, Yes, there's hope for those people. And if you shiver when you hear that, that should be a reflection of maybe we need to check our love for lost souls because God, Jesus died for those people too. Love endures all things, even being shot down over and over and over and over and over again when you invite somebody to church. Love never fails. Never fails to reach for the lost. Never fails to invite to church never fails to pray for the lost, never fails to fast for the lost, never fails to visit the lost when they're sick, never fails to meet the needs of the lost or to comfort them when they're hurting. Love never fails. The beautiful yet difficult expression of Christian love is to love the seemingly unlovable. Talking about the seemingly unlovable, to be a disciple is to love your family. This is not necessarily the same thing as loving your enemies, but sometimes it feels that way. And all the men in the church said amen. Um, <laughs> trick question, Brother Paul. Where are you, brother? <laughs> um, so Christ-like love is not just a feeling, but it's something that involves action. We talked about that previously, and I'm coming to a close. Um, 
marriage is an example of God's love and his relationship with the church. It's not just a way for us to, to find a relationship or to spend time together, but it's an institution in the Bible that was created for a purpose, and that purpose is to reflect the church's relationship with God. It's very important. It's something to be honored. It's something to be respected and not something to be taken lightly, especially by those that are in a marriage. Um, it's God's example of his love for us. And the Bible gives us different ways that we're supposed to interact with one another, the ways husbands are supposed to interact with their wives and vice versa, and how we're supposed to interact with children and vice versa. And all of those ways, when you read that, when it says wives submit to your husbands, when it says husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, you read all of those things, that's how you are commanded to love your family. And you are commanded to do so. Because when the world looks in and they see your family, they see the family unit, and they see how you interact with each other, and they see the way you love each other, and the way you forgive each other, and, and the way you work together, they're seeing a direct reflection of the way Christ works with the church, the way Christ loves the church. That's why it's so important not to take any of those scriptures for granted, not to skim over any of them, but to fulfill them to the best of your ability. And being a disciple means loving your family. I think we have a few minutes. If we could all stand and pray before we enter into the next service. Appreciate your time and your attentiveness. Lord, we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power, Lord, and we thank you most of all for your love, Jesus. Lord, we love because you first loved us. I pray that you would pour your love out in this place today and in the, in the next service, God. I pray that you would wrap us in your love. Lord, someone that's hurting, someone that needs to feel your love today, I pray that you would wrap them in your love, Jesus, that you would meet us in that service, that you would minister, Lord. Fill someone with the Holy Ghost, Jesus. Lead someone to you today, Lord. Let there be a baptism today, Lord. We expect it, Lord. We praise you and we worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have about six minutes before the next service. God bless you.